that's what we're doing. Psalm 46. Let, let's open up to that passage. Look at it again. It is a short psalm. It's a powerful psalm. It's a psalm that does speak of trust. And I think that uh, because of the nature of its design, the choir director was setting it to high voices. It was a song of praise. And in that, I also believe that when we praise the Lord, we must be thankful. And I like to call it a psalm of a thankful heart. This is one who has known their Lord. They know Him. And there's a lot for us to learn. And this psalm keeps bringing to our attention the fact that uh, though our world might be full of storms, challenges, all kinds of different things, God does not change. And so, look at the words with me. I'm going to read the entire psalm before I lead you in prayer. It's uh, 11 verses long. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains quake with its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations make an up, made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Lord, we have so much to learn about your word, so much to learn about you. As we come today, at this time in our service, where your word is opened up in front of us, we as your children just sit at your feet and ask you to teach us. Teach us again of your great love for us of your constant care for us, your ever-presence with us. Teach us again of your care over the affairs of our life, and may we learn to trust you more. Help us today as we reflect upon your word, as we think it through, as we meditate upon it, as we seek to put it into practice, that in all these things we grow closer to you and love you more. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The key statement we're looking at in this passage is in verse 10. And I told you before, I think it's a great way just to say, Stop! Stop it! That's a great way to address this. Cease striving. Be quiet. We use that word a lot with children. Maybe God looks down at us and says, You know what? There's not much difference. Stop. And no that I am God. 
Years ago, I was at a, uh, what they call Founders Week at Moody Bible Institute. They always bring in in February uh, very uh, um, influential speakers in our day. And back in the 80s, it was Chuck Swindoll and John MacArthur and all these others would come and speak for the week. And it, wow, was that fun. I remember one year, eight, 1983, that it was Chuck Swindoll's turn to be there, and he's sharing with us. And, and I just recalled again this last night, but he had a whole series of sermons out of Isaiah chapter 11. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. And his first sermon was, God is God. I don't know much else about what was all shared. It came out of Hebrews chapter 11, but I can't forget that title. God is God. His second night was, Man is Man. And I said, what a combination. That is exactly the outline for this chapter right here we're looking at. God is God. He never changes, folks. I just want to concrete that in our thinking. He never changes. We change. Life changes. Events change. Unexpected things happen. We all know that too well, don't we? God does not. That's the essence of what we're looking at here in Psalm 46. Cease striving and know that I am God. We, we see three stanzas here, and the word Salah is breaking them up. So we spent last week in the first three verses, and that was trust regardless. Regardless. Though the earth changed, though the mountains fall into the sea and all these other things, you can still trust the fact that God does not change. See striving. Know that He is God. Trust regardless. That was our first look. Today, stanza number two starts in verse number four and goes through verse number seven. Trust rehearsed today. Trust is vindicated by the past. We learn from the past. We, we build from our understanding of the past. What you do today is based on something you've learned somewhere along the way. You know what's right to do. You know what's wrong to do. You've learned from experience. You found that that, that wire along the fence where the cattle stay, you don't touch that. Probably because you've touched it before. We learn that way, don't we? Unfortunately, we learn too often that way. But, it's vindicated by the past. Because of the past, we know that God is God. And we're going to look at that today as we work through this passage. Because faith is a very interesting thing. You talk about faith, you talk about trust, and you know neither one of those words are in this entire passage. But it's the essence of what it's speaking about. And man wavers all along the way. You see sometimes uh, the graphs of the stock market. You look over the last month or the last year or something, and you see it up and you see it down and you do it like this. How would you like your faith to be grafted out? Any volunteers? Probably not. God doesn't change. 
God doesn't change. We're going to take a good look at this today. I think it's good for us to rehearse this. Because trust is something that we know we to do. Trust is something that we are doing. Sometimes in baby steps, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's, it seems easy. But pulling it all together and coming to a place like verse number 10, cease striving and know that I am God. It says an awful lot about us. I, I pulled out the definition of trust the other day. Just to review again, I mean, it sounds so elementary, but I have this wonderful technical definition, so I thought, well, I'm going to use it. Trust is this. Complete assurance and certitude regarding the truth of something. Trust is equated with dependence and reliance. Trust is believing that the platform will hold you up, so you just walk up on it. Or that the pew will hold you, so you just sit down on it. Complete assurance and certitude regarding the truth of something. We approach God's Word that way, don't we? Are we absolutely, positively sure that His Word is truth? Yes. So we trust it, right? (laughs) We say, yes, we do. But isn't that the challenge? Though we know it, we're still a little shaky at times. Unbelieving. Believing. Here's another word to define. What is believing? Well, that's an easy one. But think about it. Believing is a verb. Believing denotes action. Right? It's not just here. It's what comes out here. Believing is always seen by action. Faith without works is dead. So I said that before you today. Because as I've been showing you in verse number 10, trust is exhibited in two ways. First, stop. It's what you don't do. Striving. Cease striving. Stop struggling. Resisting. Opposing. Competing with God. Stop. Number one, you're not bigger than He is. You're not going to win. I guarantee that. Alright? There's one thing I could say with absolute positive, 100% every single time, you will never win against God. You can't. Cease striving, he says. That's the one thing we stop. The thing we do is no. No. No, that he is God. I I was thinking of this phrase again. Each time I I go to it, I say, how do I get a picture of this? I think of illustrations and stuff, and I thought of a, the, the poor guy who uh, got a little too far out from the wa- on the, in the water from the shoreline, and he began to panic. He starts thrashing about in the water. You know what I'm talking about. He has one goal. You know what that is. Breathe. He'll do anything to get another breath of air. So he's out there thrashing about. You can sit back on the shore and say, Boy, do I appreciate his effort. 
Look at all that he's putting into this. Isn't that admirable? So strong. He's trying so hard. He's working so hard. I love his plan. It's a great plan. He's got a purpose. You can see it written all over him. He's doing all these great things. But guess what he's doing? He's drowning, folks. You can admire the efforts. But he's drowning nonetheless. Some of you have been trained maybe as lifeguards. You've had something like that. Or maybe you served that way during the summer. Maybe there's somebody in your family. The lifeguard sees such a thing going on. They realize, hey, those motions are not good. Means somebody's in trouble. So, let me quiz somebody here if they happen to know the answer. The lifeguard jumps into the water, goes up as close as they possibly can, and get a hold of that person. Right? No. No. Why? Because they're thrashing about. All they want to do is breathe. You're suddenly their mountain. They're going to climb you. They're going to use you as their leverage to get up. And guess where you go? Down. There's strategies and all that. And I'm not going to try to give you a lecture on how to do that. But here's the thing. Thrashing seems to be reasonable to a drowning man. But it will not save him. Now you got the picture? Far too often we think that the striving is going to bring about the solution. So we fight. We thrash. We, we do it our way. We want it under our control. We want God to see this and be impressed. And all the while he says, this guy's drowning. Stop striving. And know that I am God. I am God. You know what? There's a side note to that. And it might just say it this way. See striving and know that you're not God. He is. What do you know? That's the second positive side. Know that He is God. This knowledge comes from experience. And I brought this up last week, but I'll just heighten it a little bit more. This is the knowledge of experience. This is, is what you have seen, you've heard, you've felt, you've noticed, you, you've observed it with your senses, but you've taken it in, you've observed it, and you're reflecting upon it. You've experienced it, you've investigated it, you've proved it to be true. And not only do you learn it, that this is true, but you pass it on. Because that's the next step with really knowing who God is. It's not for yourself. It's not to keep to yourself, but you pass it on. That's the nature of this knowledge. And the Lord wants you to know Him like that. He wants you to know Him like that. Yes, we have a lot of experiences. Is He still in control? Yes. Many of those are to test you. Peter says, they test of your faith test of your faith. He'll let you walk down those roads. And it's because he wants you to draw closer to him. You know what? We have an incredible advantage here this morning. Because we have God's word, we can go to so many examples of people who had to learn that, and they had the pains and the bruises, and all we have to do is read it and believe it. Doesn't that sound nicer? We could, we could read their stories. 
We can see their mistakes. We can see how God solved their problems and, and how He proved Himself to be God on every single page. We can learn from that. Or simply say this, because you have God's Word in your hand, you have no excuse for a lack of trust. None. The statement that we start with in Psalm 46 is this. God is our refuge and strength. He is. He is a very present help in trouble. He is. That's why he says, cease striving and know that I am God. The old Hebrew style is this way. To know that I am. Because that's his name too. Know that I am. Wow. So, trust rehearsed. Let's look at these verses, 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Those are beautiful words, especially verse number 4 and 5. It sounds like a song ought to be written right there. Probably has been many. There's two scenes, in a sense, set before you. Or two things going on in one scene. And they seem like totally contradictory things. The first is the beautiful view of this city. You can see it in verse number 4. There's a river there. And there are streams, and there's a city that's very glad. The river and the streams are not named. We could guess. You could guess all day long. You would never. There's no answer to it. We don't know the streams, and we don't know the river. But the river is supplying the streams, and the streams are supplying the city. Simple little picture. It's not uncommon in the Old Testament world that cities are set beside rivers. We were asking this question this morning. Maybe you guys would know. Why would they call this town cold water? Where is the cold water? In the Old Testament, they said, hey, water, build a city. That's the way they did it. So many of them would build a, a city right next to where the water would be. Sometimes the water flowed through the city. Rivers would flow through cities. Sometimes it was just the branch of a river, a stream, that would come off and provide for the city's water supply. The implication in this verse is something smooth flowing, something that never failed, some wonderful refreshment. It's a pretty picture. The picture he had just given to us in verse number 2 and 3 Doesn't sound so pretty. Earthquakes, mountains disappearing into the ocean. He talked about uh, waters roaring and foaming. You don't want waters roaring and foaming through your city. All right? You don't build your city on the ocean. I mean, that's not calm, soothing water. Some people like the sound of the waves at night. I admit that. But if you want a drink of water, you're not going to the ocean for it. You want the stream. You want the gentle waters. 
you want the, the smooth, beautiful picture here. You're not looking at a, a boisterous ocean here. You're, not, you're looking at a placid stream. It's providing for this city. And this city's sitting upon it, and it's quite content where it is. It's made glad. It's called the city of God. Interestingly, we, we tend to think, well, if it's the city of God and the holy dwelling places of the Most High, it must be Jerusalem. That's the term we use in the Old Testament for such a city. And if uh, this, was, this is probably true, they wrote many psalms about Jerusalem, though it's not named. It's called the city of God. It was known as a beautiful city to those folks. Song after song did that. David wrote about it many times. He wanted the temple there, remember? And they did build it later. Solomon's temple was built there. God did not live in that temple. He says, you can't build a house big enough for me. He did not live in the temple. But he did meet with the folks there. That was a symbol of his presence, that they could come to a place, a single place in worship. And that's where God met with them for worship. And that was what Jerusalem was designed to be for them. Even today... Folks, is not Jerusalem a significant city in the nation of Israel? Makes the news quite often, especially in the last this last year. That is not uncommon. And folks, I'll tell you what, it's going to be even more significant during the thousand year reign of Christ. He's going to dwell right there and rule right there, literally, physically, from the city of Jerusalem. What a day that will be. You'll be there to see it. I'll be there to see it. I can't wait. That's going to be really fascinating to see. Then we'll understand more about this city and what God thinks about it. But in the Old Testament, there were some words that were absolutely frightening. The city is surrounded. It happened several times when the city was surrounded by the enemies. This beautiful city, this place where God dwelled among them, the way they would describe it. God is in our midst and all that. And all around the city were the enemies. We talked a little bit about the day of Hezekiah last week. Isaiah, especially chapter 36 and chapter 37. Isaiah talks about the day that the Assyrians came to town. There were lots of them, folks. Lots of them. You look outside the city walls and you were surrounded. The entire Assyrian army just spread out around you and taunting you and saying, your God can't do a thing for you. He, he, he couldn't, this God couldn't help them and this God couldn't help them and your God's no different. Those weren't good words to say because God heard it. And that night, 186,000 Assyrians died in their sleep. Isn't that amazing? The angel came and visited them. That's an interesting picture. Some say that might be the story behind this song. Because in the dawn, guess who's been with them all through the day? When did the help come? In the dawn, it says here in these verses. Some people say, well, that might have been that story. It might have been. I'll tell you another guy who might have really appreciated this song. His name was Elisha. I want to show you his story for a minute. It's in 2 Kings chapter number 6. This is one of my favorite stories. I love reading about Elisha. You probably would have liked reading about Elisha, but I don't know if you would have liked living near Elisha. His life was so 
interesting and unusual. All the crazy things that happened in his life. It's like, wow, would you like him for a neighbor? Just incredible events that God led him through. And here's one. He had a servant named Gehazi. Everyone pronounces it different, but I'm preaching today, so it's Gehazi. Gehazi was his servant. Gehazi was a little bit shaky on his faith at times. Especially this day. In 2 Kings chapter number 6, there was a, a, a problem with the Syrian army. They're called Aram in the story. If you see the word Aram, it says in, in verse number 8, for example, they were warring against Israel. And he counseled with his servants, that's the king of Aram, he's Syria, he's talking with his servants saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. All right? He's inside his tent somewhere, and they're talking about their strategies. They say, we're going to set up our tents over here. All right? That's going to catch them off guard. Well, the man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel and said, Behold, beware! That you do not pass that place over there because that's where the Assyrians are, or the Assyrians are going to put up their tents. Well, the king of Israel went to that place to see what the man of God had told him about it. And sure enough, there they were. It happened once, it happened twice, it happened many times. Well, the Syrian king got very mad. He said, there's a bug somewhere in this house. Somebody's listening to our counsel. Somebody's telling the king of Israel every step we're taking. There's a spy among us. Who is it? They couldn't figure out who was giving away all the information. And one of the servants simply said this in verse 12. Oh, king, it's Elisha. He's a prophet. He knows these things. He knows what you speak in your bedroom. Maybe a little bit more credit given to Elisha than what he really had. But God had been directing him. And so they said, okay. Well, then our best thing to do is to go get this Elisha. If you get rid of Elisha, then you solve the whole problem, right? So what did they do? Verse number 14. He sent horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And guess who lived in that city? Elisha. Now, when the attendant of the man of God, Gehazi, got up early in the morning, he went out. He looks out the front door, right? Went to get the newspaper or something. Steps out on the porch, looks out there, and there's the whole Syrian army right around the house. He goes, uh-oh. He goes back into the house. We're surrounded. We're in trouble. Did you see what's outside? Look at all of them. He goes and he shakes up Elisha and says, My master, what shall we do? This guy was in striving mode. All right? It's time to panic. It's time to thrash. It's time to do something. What shall we do? And Elisha looks at him and says, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, this guy does math. Gehazi saying, One, two. And then he looks outside again. But Elisha says, No, there's more. He says, God, would you just open his eyes? Just open his eyes. Show him what's out there for sure. This is what he did. It says in verse 17, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. Behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elisha. So Elisha is surrounded by the Syrians, and the Syrians are surrounded by the army of God. Do you feel secure now? I love that story. I think that's pretty interesting. Because sometimes we try to put our fingers on theology and try to understand God. And we understand trouble. But God in the midst of trouble? I was many, many years ago. Abby was only four years old. We were having talk about God one day. And she made a very profound statement for a four-year-old. This is what she said. He's the biggest God I've never seen. I said, that sounds right. I wrote that down just so I could use that in a sermon someday. So that's what it is. He's the biggest God I've never seen. The scene is very beautiful in this psalm. The scene is all at rest in the city. But look outside the window and what do you see? There's the nations. They're in an uproar. That's what the text says, right? The nations... Kingdoms are tottering. It's a, it's a terrible thing going on outside the city walls. We're looking at that scene with them. Verse number 6. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. Everything's shaking. Chaos. Noise. Threats. God raised His voice. The earth melted. You know, nations express their strength and their right to rule with power. Today, they use pretty heavy-duty weapons, don't they? We read of atomic issues. We read of nuclear devastation. We read of the potential of World War III. They use terms like that in the news. We, we wonder, is there going to be a day when all the nations are going to be wiped off the map because of conflict of this kind of thing? Sabers start to rattle. That's the old term, by the way. Sabers start to rattle. There are threats. There's movement of tanks and jets and, and ships and troops go here and troops go there. Uproars. Kingdoms that totter. God raises his voice. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't raise his little finger. He raises his voice. And that's all it takes. He began the world with his word. Right? By his word, the heavens and the earth came into being. The sun, the moon, the stars, light. God said, let there be. With just His words. Powerful words. If God looked at a person and said, drop dead, what would they do? I love the scene in the garden when Jesus was being arrested. I think sometimes it's a little comical, but it's such a serious thing. When they came out and said they wanted to know who, where is Jesus, the Nazarene or... He says, I am. You know what words he used? He says, I am the one you're looking for. Boom! The whole bunch of them fell down. There were some 6,000 guys in that crowd. Can you picture it? 
with all their armor and everything else laying on the ground trying to get up like turtles on their backs? Quite an interesting picture. They got up and arrested him anyway. Wow. But just his words were enough to flatten them all. God raised his voice. You see, he controls this world by his word. I'll show you another passage. It's in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. You know Isaiah chapter 40. At least you know the last couple of verses of it. In Isaiah chapter 40, it ends with, Yea, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Right? You like that verse. Most people even might have it on their plaque in their house somewhere on the wall. But this also is in Psalm 40, verse 21 through 24. Watch these words. Do you not know? There's our word. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the very beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that He, it is He who sits above the circle of the earth? He's speaking of God. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is. He reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. That's a powerful passage. That's a powerful passage. It says in our psalm passage, the Lord is with us. Think about that. Would you rather have him with you or against you? Oh, that's an easy question. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. He is our refuge. He's our strength. He's our stronghold, it says in verse number 7. It says it in verse number 11. He is our stronghold. What do you think they're trying to tell us? He is our stronghold, folks. He's our stronghold. But why do we have to repeat that? Because we forget it. When we look out the window... We forget it. We see the trouble. We forget it. We see the roar or hear it. We forget it. We see things change. We forget it. We see the earth move. We forget it. We see the waters rise up. We forget it. Because we're looking out there and not at Him. We need it repeated. Peter said, that's my whole mission. You ever read Second Peter chapter number 1? He says, I wrote these things so you'll always remember it. And I'm going to repeat it. And I'm going to keep repeating it so you don't ever forget it. And when I'm long gone, you will never forget it because I've repeated it. That was Peter's desire with his folks that he ministered to. He says, I'm going to just keep telling it to you, telling it to you, telling it to you. So you could draw that to your mind whenever you need it. Repeat it. They say that those who are likely to repeat history are those who never learn from it. You've heard that phrase. 
Those who did not learn from history are likely to repeat it. But here's another thought for you. Those who learn from history repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. They learn from history. And so they repeat it. The Jews, one of their greatest errors was that they did not repeat the acts of God to their children. How many times that was true. The next generation that came up seemed to be an absolute mission field. Their children knew nothing of God. They walked around like they were perfect heathens. They had no conception of who God was. Their parents didn't tell them. And it's the parents that went through the Red Sea. The parents saw God provide manna for all those years. The children didn't know it. How could that be? Because they didn't talk about the things of God. They didn't share it with their children. So they grew up ignorant. They didn't know his expectations. They didn't know that he deserved glory. Our generation today, in this country, thinks, it's best to let children find out what they believe on their own. That is disastrous, folks. Especially when you know the truth. We do them an injustice by not talking about the things that God has done for us. We're disobedient to His call because we don't talk about the things that God has done for us. And we don't give Him the glory He deserves. We don't show our children the true path of life. No wonder there are so many on the path of destruction. We haven't talked about it. The Jews had that problem too. And the cure for our country, like any other country, it's not in laws. It's not in leaders. It's not in constitutions. It's in knowing God. Because it says, it's only that nation that fears the Lord that will be blessed. God wrote that. That will not change. So if we forget what God has done, that's astonishing to me, really. If we just forget it, that's astonishing that we could. But if we refuse to rehearse what God has done, our world will never hear it. Not from our lips. God has made us incredible promises. They're right here in even this verse, because this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Didn't he promise he'd be with us? Did he? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always? Is that true? Is he with us now? Mm -hmm. Don't we read when... When the report was given about the birth of Jesus, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Has that changed? Is he with us now? I'm just putting something together for you. So it seems absolutely silly that we keep striving. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Here is the command. Here is the reason which will help us to obey it. Judge not the Lord hastily. Murmur not at his providential dealings with you. 
Be not hurrying and scurrying hither and thither, but be still. In silence and in confidence shall be your strength. Be still and know that I am God. I put that word trust out before you today. The trust, even as the story is going through and we're reading it here, Folks, it said the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, the earth melted. Those are all past tense things. That means they've seen it before. That was history. And this psalm is rehearsing it. Why can we trust him? Because we've seen him do this before. Isn't that true? We've seen him do it before. Why do we act like every new day God is somebody different? This is your relationship with Him. You're trying hard, I know, maybe I'm just talking to myself. Or maybe somebody here is going to feel like they're getting stomped on right now. You try very, very hard to do it yourself. You try to make something happen. You work at it for a long time. You go against many difficulties. Sometimes you're struggling, but that's with God. Sometimes you're resisting Him because you know what He said. Sometimes you oppose Him because you don't want to do it. Sometimes you compete with Him because you want mastery in the moment. You want to do it your way and finish it your way and to accomplish something by your power. And God says, let it go. Cease striving. I'm God. Drop it. Abandon the struggle. Let it go. Be quiet. He's speaking in a psalm to somebody fighting against him. That's why the command is there. Like I said, it could be an unbeliever. Maybe somebody here doesn't know the Lord, and you've been fighting this for a long time. You hear the message, you know who He is, you know what He's claimed on you, you know that Christ died for you, you don't want to give in. I'll I'll work out my salvation my own way. God says, stop it. Because there is no other way. You know, you'll never know peace until you do it. See, striving, and know that He is God. Trust Him and believe Him. Believe the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you, that you might be saved. Believe him. Maybe it's an unbeliever striving against God. But then, folks, maybe it's a believer striving against God. Maybe we're the ones who are going through the difficulties and the struggles and all these things because we are resisting his sovereignty. We want the sovereignty. We want to be in charge. We want to fight with God. (laughs) I hate to say it that way. But you picked a fight with Him. And you're not going to win. You're not going to win. Cease striving. And know Him. Folks, just pull out your old record book and see what He has done. Isn't that what it means when we sing the song? Great things He has taught us. Great things He has done. And what's our conclusion on that one? Great is His faithfulness. Heavenly Father, we need this today. We do struggle. We do fight against things. We 
have to admit, we wrestle against you. I thank you, Lord, that your word is written down for us to see it again. It's not so that we can come out of here bruised and black and blue and all the rest because of what your word has done to us, but you are calling us to draw closer to you. The whole reason you've told us to stop fighting is so that you could draw us near, that we might see, that we might rest in you, that we might find those pleasant places and their peaceful places in the sovereignty of your will as you are orchestrating the events of our life. There is a pleasant place to be, and that is with our God. You are with us, but are we with you? Challenge us with this passage, Lord. But above all things, wrap us with your love. Show us again, Lord. You've repeated this so many times in our hearing. Show us again that you've done it because you love us. And we, we go out of hearing courage. Strengthened for a new day. Prepared for a week before us. Ready to draw close to our God. May that be what we do in response to all these things. May we cease striving and know that you are God. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.